Bandwidth for Changelog is provided by Fastly. Learn more at Fastly.com, and we're hosted on Linode servers. Head to linode.com slash changelog. Hi, I'm Liz Wright, and it's go time. It's Go Time, a weekly podcast where we discuss interesting topics around the Go programming language, the community, and everything in between. If you currently write Go or aspire to, this is the show for you. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Go Time. Today's episode is number 56. Uh, on the show today, we have myself, Eric. Uh, Brian Kettleson is also on. Say hello, Brian. Hello, Brian. <laughs> I need to come up with something different just to stop you from saying that. I went back to that. I thought that was over. <laughs> then we also have Carlicia Pinto on the show. Hi, everybody. And our special guest today, um, we actually talked a little bit about on our GopherCon retrospect as uh, one of our favorite talks. Please welcome Liz Rice. Hello. Yay. It was so nice what you said about my talk at GopherCon. That was one of the episodes of GoTime that I've heard, and it was, oh, yeah, I was blown away by the comments on that. <laughs> oh, you actually listened to that? I did. Oh. <laughs> Yeah, sorry. It was, um, yeah, I think it was definitely one of our favorites. And I really enjoyed your um, container talk, too. I'm, was that Golang UK you gave that at? Yeah, yeah, it was last year. Yeah, that was, I, I really loved that one, too, because it really broke down kind of what a container is. There's a lot of um, confusion a lot of times when people get into containers and they try to kind of compare it more to a lightweight virtual machine rather than like a, just a highly configured process. And I think implementing one um, kind of from scratch really kind of demonstrates that. Right. I mean, it's, it's uh, I, I don't think there's a better way of really seeing what's going on than to see the code, you know, for people who understand code. It's just, it's the clearest way. I always find it much easier to see code than, I don't know, to try and understand what people mean when they draw boxes. You know, show me the code. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, boxes only get you so far. I mean, that, yeah. that I think is enough to hook you like, oh, this could be interesting. Uh, how might I use this? But when it comes down to kind of truly understanding and implementing something, seeing the code is where it's at. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I'm exaggerating about the boxes. Some boxes are really good. Uh, who was it? Was it Bob Martin who made the comment about uh, architecture is just about drawing boxes with arrows going in one direction or something like that? <laughs> <laughs> so for anybody who might uh, not be familiar with you and kind of your work, do you want to just kind of give a, a brief background? Sure. Okay. So um, I am, I suppose, an engineer by trade. Um I spent a lot of my career working on network protocols and um, I started off writing in C for, for a very long time. Um, I had a few years where I stopped writing code and I went and did product management for, for a few companies. Some of them you might have heard of like Skype and uh, Last.fm 
And uh, then I did some consultancy for a few years. And then it turned out people had invented much more interesting languages than, than C. And uh, I kind of got back into programming again. And uh, now I am a technology evangelist, is my job title, for a company called Aqua Security. And we help enterprises with securing their containerized deployment. Um, but I basically have a really, really, really fun job of kind of demonstrating things and um, trying to explain what's going on in various bits of technology, hopefully with some kind of, you know, relationship to security and to containers. But, uh, you know, we're pretty relaxed about how, you know, some of my talks don't really talk about security very much at all. And uh, yeah, it's really fun. I think understanding um, things at like a more in-depth level helps with security, though, too. So I'd kind of argue that it's beneficial from a security standpoint. I definitely think it is. And particularly with, um, you know, the world of containers where if people are thinking about them as if they're virtual machines, well, they're not really thinking about it the right way. And there's so many, um, you know, different kind of uh, insecurities. Um, you know, fundamentally, if you want the security of a virtual machine, use a virtual machine. Um, but um, containers are really interesting as well from the perspective of microservices. So if you can break your code into microservices, you've got these much smaller components that do a much more limited set of things. So it's easier to profile them and, and learn what they're supposed to do and you know what files they're supposed to access and what network connections they're supposed to have and, and all that kind of thing. Um, so from a security perspective, you can really learn about running behavior much more easily in a containerized architecture than you could with like big monolithic uh, kind of virtual machines. So I think that's really exciting. But talk to us more about that, because when I think about it, I think that at an individual level, it would, the security issues would be much easier to grasp and comprehend for a microservice, for a single microservice. But when you have so many, it sounds that would be more difficult. So how does the container help with that? Contrast that place with how it would be with a virtual machine. Yeah, I think it's really about decomposing the problem. The same way that the microservices from a you know software architecture point of view can decompose the problem. Um, the fact that you've now got these more um, kind of isolated, well, we'll say containers, um, you've got a, a different problem in that you need to keep track of what each of those different containers is doing and whether it's behaving the way it's supposed to. But I think particularly from, you know, looking at runtime, it should be easier to spot anomalous behavior than if you've got a lot of things going on. You know, a really good example is um, if you've got a microservice that is uh, supposed to, maybe it's product search, so it's supposed to look up products from a product database. So it only ever kind of reads from the database. And so if you were to catch that microservice trying to write something to a database, you'd know that it was something that isn't supposed to happen, whether it's, you know, nefarious or kind of, Somebody wrote some bad code somewhere, um, but I, you know, I think I think that's a really good sort of model for thinking. Or yeah, we can we can reason about what these different microservices should do. 
Did that help? Yeah, and I'm thinking, so is that a container level security gateway, I would say? Yeah, so um, Aqua, we have a product that kind of covers the whole life cycle of containers, really. So we do the image scanning and and looking for vulnerabilities. Um, And in some ways, that's more complex for containers just because you've got more instances of different pieces of code. And uh, I guess there's a few other bits and pieces. But the bit that I think is just fascinating is um, runtime profiling and uh, learning what a, what the containers are supposed to do and being able to alert when, um, you know, something unexpected happens. Yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking about. And I think you touched on that with uh, so many microservices and so many images and maybe even so many containers, you would need something like what your company does that would help manage the security for, for all of right. that as a group. Yeah, yeah. and it's one of the things, I've been with Aqua for, I guess, coming up six months now, and um, it's one of the things that really excited me about joining them was, oh, I can really see how this product is needed. And, you know, I hadn't come from a security background. I'd come from a development background and a containers background but seeing this you know seeing the product and seeing it catching potential exploits you know just as they happen yeah this seems really important and valuable and it's kind of fun to work on a product that people pay money for (laughs) yeah absolutely and that is done in go as well and yeah so some of it's go some of it uh there's some c code as well because they're doing some pretty low-level things to to monitor what's going on, you know, inside containers. So it seems you actually really enjoy um, educating people on low-level things like, uh, you know, container implementations and um, the syscall talk that you recently gave. Um, Kind of what motivates you there? um, You know, people asking you questions and you kind of try to produce content to answer it to a wider group? Is this just stuff you're you're super excited about? How do you, how do you choose what you're going to talk yeah, about? Yeah, so that's, it, it started with the container talk. I saw a, a sort of a, like an early version of that by um, Julian Friedman from IBM um, quite early on when I was first dealing with containers. And it just clarified everything for me. And I thought, I want to kind of replicate this you know I had to go away and do it myself at home and then I thought you know this this well I spoke to Julian and I said do you mind if I you know borrow this idea and he was kind of go for it I don't really like you know writing code live (laughs) so um so I kind of took it and um I guess evolved it and it turned out that people seem to really enjoy it I I can't tell you how much I love the you know the comments that I get after after doing a talk. And I think people really like seeing something really sort of, exp- something that they thought was maybe kind of magic or pretty, you know, some kind of thing over there that I don't really know what happens. And being able to get to the sort of, you know, the core internals of something, I, I just, I think it's really powerful and, and other people seem to like it as well. So is, is there a trick to taking something that's as complex as, say, syscalls or, or networking and presenting it in a way that make, 
people understand it. It still feels like magic, but you know, they appreciate the presentation afterwards because I think that's the feeling that everybody takes away from your presentations is that's absolute magic, but I can do that too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I think my process is to sort of just try building things, you know, I'll think, well, what happens if I try and build this thing or if I try to kind of reproduce what's going on and um or, or you know if I try using something what what will happen so it's kind of experimentation and I'll try lots of things and some something seems to always leap out and say over here this is really interesting and I, you know it's kind of easy enough to to write in a few lines of code so um you know I can remember it because obviously I have to be able to memorize the code to type it in when I'm doing a talk um and uh yeah I just I just somehow end up exploring something thinking this is really fascinating like the the Siskel's thing getting into P-Trace and I'd heard of P-Trace I had an idea what it was but when you start trying it and exploring it you think yeah this is really powerful I get this yeah, the the first time I ever used like S trace or L trace and like got to see all the syscalls and library calls that were being made by processes, you're like, you know, I have superpowers. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and and looking at um, what's inside the slash proc directory as well, it's just a kind of gold mine of crazy interesting things that the kernel's doing and. Uh, yeah, I think there's there's all sorts of fun things in there. I love the proc directory and just kind of digging through. I hate that it's not very well documented. And even looking through the Linux source code to figure out, like, how does this counter get incremented? Like, what does that really mean? It's yeah. uh, often complex. Did you see um, Jess Frizzell was just uh, on Twitter today asking people about their opinions on, you know, if slash proc had a... A better API, what would it look like? Or what would people like to see from a, from a better API to slash prop? Yeah, and it's actually really amazing how many of the tools that people use every day, like Top and HTOP and, and you know, others that really are just interfaces over the top of that proc directory. Right, right. But yeah, I think there needs to be better documentation on on some of that stuff, for sure. There's, um, there's actually a really cool... Um, uh, GitHub repo. Uh, I, I'm trying to remember this off the top of my head. I think it's github.com slash 0xax Linux hyphen insides. And it, it walks through a lot of stuff like the assembly during the boot up process and how like a process actually gets called by the kernel. It's got some stuff in, on C groups and, and things like that and some of the internal um, uh, data structures and things that are used. Um, so if anybody's like interested in like really deep kernel internals, that's a super cool repo to check out. That does look amazing. But I, I don't think they have anything on the proc directory, which would be awesome. I'm just looking at it now. Yeah, they've got some things <laughs> like C groups, which probably goes into, probably has to look at slash prop. But yeah, it looks amazing. Interrupts and interrupt handlers and all kinds of like really, really deep level kernel stuff. And how you approach looking at these things, these things that are lower level and we don't get to look at, 
on a daily basis unless we make an effort and have the curiosity to do so. So the the way you approach looking at these things, that's what I think makes a big difference. For example, um, looking at Liz talk about the syscall, there was a moment when you print, you output some stack to the screen, to the terminal, and I was looking at that. I was like, okay, that's what what the output is. And you were looking at that and thinking, no, that those are duplicates. <laughs> I would have been thinking, well, that's how it is. And you're thinking, well, those are look duplicates. That doesn't sound right. So let's look more into it. Uh, I was just totally taken for granted that that's how it was. Yeah, I think I'm, I might have had a, a, a certain amount of, um, uh, I don't know, I'm going to say storytelling license there because I had actually seen the bit in the man page that says you've got these two different stop uh, states and you can't tell the difference as the tracer. Um, but it just made more sense as a story to to do it that way, to say, oh, look, here, they're duplicate. Now I'm going to, you know, explain why they're duplicate and uh, address that issue. <laughs> yeah, but I think it highlights uh, something important, which is, Sometimes when we are looking at something that's completely new, we can just take for granted that that's how it's supposed to work. But we should always have a, take a second look and question and inquiry and go deeper. I thought it was yeah. a good reminder to do that. You know who I think is amazing at this um, is Julia Evans. Have you seen her? Oh, yeah. Her work? Because yeah. she's so good at having that kind of curiosity, you know, yeah. about how does a thing work? Amazing. And, yeah. you know, the thing that I love about that approach um, with like kind of those quick graphics and, and things like that that she creates is um, it gives you like this really abstract understanding of it, but it gives you enough hooks where like if you wanted to dig a little deeper on one section, you could. And that usually tends to be the problem with these like really, really highly technical things is it seems so broad, you don't know where to start. Mm, mm. And I think she kind of takes the fear out of it somehow. So, yeah, I, I absolutely love her work. And if you are not following her on Twitter, you definitely should. Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. I, I agree with that, too. Definitely. So what's next on the list? Do you have any ideas for kind of what your your next talk or blog post or something will be about? Mm, yeah, yeah. So um I have a couple of ideas for things and I um, was kind of raising the question on Twitter just the other day because I'd really love to hear from you know other people their ideas of things that they kind of think yeah that's that area over there I really don't know how it works um, so if you're listening and there's something you think might be able to be explained in 60 lines of go <laughs> let me know <laughs> Um, you don't have to, you know, count the lines of code. Um, but yeah, so I'm, I'm certainly thinking about maybe doing some more about debugging, maybe doing some more with ptrace and kind of manipulating processes with ptrace. Um, maybe even doing something about regular expressions because I think they're a bit, but I haven't figured out how to kind of take away the difficult bits of regular expressions, you know. Um, but those are a few ideas that I've got on the top of my head at the moment and i'd definitely be keen to hear about other things what about like uh something being you have a networking background what about something networking related uh, there's a lot of uh 
there's a lot of stuff going on in kind of the cloud networking space now, you know, CNI and you've got things like flannel and uh, Calico and all of these yeah. things that, that kind of create uh, these mesh networks and things like understanding that a little bit might be yeah, interesting. I would, I should really understand flannel and Calico better than I currently do. So actually that's a really good idea. I should probably uh, uh, dig into those more. There's so many things. It's, it's, there's a world of things out there to learn about. Yeah, finding the time for all of them is is the challenge. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's exactly the problem, finding the time. It's impossible. There's so many things to learn. I think um, also an, another cool topic, I think, for people would be understanding Linux schedulers. I don't know how you would implement that in Go code, but I think that that's something that um, I find like having discussions with people, too, that um, it's kind of like a... a uh, a dark magic that just occurs, right? You like run this thing and you just Linux does that. And you know, there's kind of the whole concept of schedulers and there's different scheduler choices and then you get into real time scheduling. Mm. Yeah. And and I think it's quite widespread that, that people have sort of misunderstandings about threading and concurrency and well, I mean there's been some amazing talks about concurrency and, and books about concurrency, um, you know, that try and explain some of those things. But it always used to bug me when people would say, oh, you know, I'm, I'm going to make my code more performant by making it, you know, highly multi-threaded and kind of thinking, well, unless it's blocking on something, how many CPU cores have you actually got? You know, just throwing threads at a problem doesn't necessarily make things run faster. In fact. <laughs> yeah. Then you also have contending for resources, right? Like if both of them need access to the same resource, one can be blocking, waiting for another. And it actually kind of reminds me a little bit of the reverse of that when like hyper threading came out and in multi CPU motherboards and then multi core, you know, the number of people are like, I'm going to get, you know, a, a board with two processors so all my stuff runs faster it's like that's not 100 percent accurate yeah. <laughs> it might <laughs> it just depends on the way it was written I, I mean no doubt you could run more than one thing at one time right if you had two completely isolated processes but you know people just automatically assume that some you know cpu hog program that they used was going to be magically faster because they have more cores yeah but I mean, that's all part of our growth, right? I think that uh, you don't know what you don't know. Definitely. And and it, it, the other thing that I, I always feel is in the same category is um, blocking. You know, you see so many people who kind of uh, throw locks at code without necessarily really <laughs> having a strategy for it. That's and my coding that, plan. Add a new text. <laughs> yeah. What could possibly go wrong? Throw another lock at it. So do you have somewhere like a, a poll or something where you're having people submit suggestions? Because we could definitely link to it in the show notes and, and have people um, suggest topic oh, ideas. That's a really good idea. Yeah, I could have a poll. I could have, uh, yeah, I will set something up so that in the show notes we can have a poll. Great idea. So I think it would be really interesting, especially because... Um, I think a lot of us came from, you know, dynamic languages and things like that. And 
you know, Go is a lot closer to C in the in the sense of you know being a, a systems language. So I think there's a lot of people learning a lot of these things that I think a lot of the people who came from the systems programming background take for granted. You know, they learned C, they they've written syscalls, they've you know they kind of understand um, the kernel and how it operates and and even networking and uh, you know, there, there's a much larger group of people probably migrating to go that this is all new information for us. So I think it's really valuable that, uh, you know, people like you and Julia are are trying to help educate people in these things in ways that they can easily understand. Hopefully, yes. Kernel man pages are not the best way to learn stuff. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they're there. I mean, in some cases, it's the only option, but uh, some of those things are extremely hard to learn on your own unless you're you're already familiar with the domain or really want to do like a lot of digging and playing and, and learning through failure. Yeah, which again takes time. So you've done some Alexa apps, haven't you? Oh yeah. Yeah. So um over New Year I was at a house party with some friends over a few days and uh somebody had a uh, uh, an Alexa, what do you call them? Uh, Echo. And uh, I just kind of ended up sort of hacking together the beginnings of a skill. And uh, it, it, I, I wrote about it on Medium and, and that has actually ended up being kind of one of my most popular posts, even though it's not actually in Go, it's in Python. But uh, uh, it, yeah, that was quite a lot of fun. And I did a few follow-up posts. It was basically kind of my journey of writing my first Alexa skill. And uh, now that's something I would definitely, I would love to have a bit more time to sort of explore voice apps and, you know, actually using the um, uh, the shims so that you can write voice apps and go, which I would, I haven't tried yet, but I really, really want to. So, so I'm curious. Oh, go ahead, Brian. Oh, I was just going to ask what the app did. And then as a follow-up question, did they invite you back afterwards? <laughs> so, um, yeah, it's a group of friends. We, we've kind of always had New Year together for like the last many, many years. And now well, a lot of people have got kids as well. So the group's got bigger and bigger. And my skill, the idea, what I thought would be really fun would be, oh, I could just have a list of the names and like particularly for the kids, they could hear Alexa saying that, you know, they were in the house. So um, it was just going to say, you know, Anne, John, Matthew, Charlotte, whatever are in the house. And then I started adding commands to say that people were leaving and that other people were arriving. And um, the idea is that it's supposed to kind of keep a, a list of who is in the house. And, um, uh yeah it's uh we ended up looking not actually at the same uh holiday but we ended up looking at oh could we keep track of this with the the router i'm I'm saying that in the english way i should say router you know look at whose uh mobile phones are connected to the router and using that to maintain the list of who is in the house um didn't quite get as far as doing that but i thought that'd be kind of fun and also a bit big brother a little bit creepy that's cool. Yeah. I was going to ask uh, if there was any particular reason why you didn't choose Go, and nothing against you having done that in any other language, but I'm more curious to know if in, in the case you did evaluate Go for this project and just Go wasn't up to par. 
So um, I don't know if this is still the case, but um, Amazon, certainly at the time, supported Node and Python, and I think maybe one other, um, certainly those two, of which Python I was by far the most familiar with. So that was kind of the natural choice, just, you know, to to hack something together. Um, But now there are some, uh, some shims and some some libraries and tooling out there to let you kind of implement the real function in whatever language you like. Um, There's one called Apex that I've heard is really good um, to let you write your functions in Go. And then you've you've just got this sort of little shim thing in Python or or whatever that calls your, um, your function. It's all done with containers, you know. Turtles all the way down. Yeah. <laughs> so um, in our email uh, that we we send out where we talk about kind of uh, the things you're interested in working on and all that good stuff, you were talking about a couple of tools that you've written. Uh, one of them was Kubernetes security benchmarking. Yeah, KubeBench. Yeah. Shall I talk a bit about that? <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm really interested in that. Uh, you know, I, I know Brian and I are are big Kubernetes fans. Carlicia is fastly using Kubernetes at all? Not that I know of. Uh, at least the work that I do doesn't use in Kubernetes. Docker, yes. Kubernetes, no. The, but in some other parts of the company, maybe. I don't know. See, you make the name sound so much better. Say Kubernetes again. Kubernetes. Ah, uh, see, the first time I think you said like Kubernetes, like you had like a nice inflection on it and it sounded, you know. I think I mispronounced a letter or two the first time and it sounded exotic to you, but it was just just wrong. (laughs) (laughs) The second time I pronounced it right. And I'm going to go with the first time was right. I I like that. It sounds more elegant. Whenever you want me to say it, I'll say it. (laughs) I think I flipped between Kubernetes and Kubernetes and I really haven't, I really don't know which is right. It's a bit like schedule and schedule. I genuinely don't know which of those two is the right pronunciation. <laughs> I don't think it matters in the end. Let's come up with more different ways of pronouncing it. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I was going to talk about KubeBench, wasn't I? Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So um, there is an organization called the Center for Internet Security, and they write um, kind of guidelines they're called benchmarks for um how to configure software to implement best practices for security uh and they've got a i guess over the last maybe two or three months they um they released a benchmark for kubernetes and uh, so basically the guidelines are kind of 200 pages of you should check whether or not you're running with this option and you should check that this flag is set to zero and you should check that this other flag is set you know is set to something else and so it's a lot of um tests that we have with keybench uh, automated uh and it's a, a go program that implements these tests and the tests themselves are written as YAML files. So that as the spec evolves, as the benchmark evolves, um, you can, well, it should be easy for us to update the, the test files. And it should also be possible for people to add their own custom tests if they want to. 
um, essentially the tests are mostly calling out to some kind of, uh, say, for example, calling out to PS and, and checking the results of PS to see what executables are running, that kind of thing. Um, so it's a pretty flexible tool. But the idea is then you can just run it uh, on all the nodes in your cluster and get a, a report in a kind of standard format, um, either some text output or JSON output, to report on how well your Kubernetes nodes are complying with the benchmark. So it should just make it automate something that would otherwise be impossibly too much work to do by hand. Yeah, we've dealt with the CIS benchmarks in the past. Eric and I both at previous companies, and it's it's really painful, really ugly. So having that automated is awesome, and especially for something as modern as Go, or I'm sorry, as modern as Kubernetes. Yeah, yeah, and um, I I think it will be evolve. There's so many, um, you know potential security i'm I'm not trying to say that kubernetes is insecure but it it there are ways that you can set it up that could be very insecure um so just checking that that isn't like for example whether or not you allow privileged containers you know just checking whether or not you've got that turned on or not is uh, probably a good idea so robin uh in the go time channel asks uh what are the top most important uh kubernetes security measures Great question. Um, how long have we got? <laughs> um, <laughs> so um, I did a, a webinar with a colleague, uh, I guess, uh, maybe a month or so ago now, um, about exactly this question. So um, I guess very briefly, there's, and we've just been talking about KubeBench and, and the settings and um, things like, have you um, set up um, authentication between your nodes or they you know so they've got a uh, use certificates um are you uh, allowing privileged containers or not that kind of thing that you configure as you're installing or running the the kubernetes executables themselves um but it's broader than that in that you want to be um vetting the the container images that you run on your on your cluster, um, you know, vetting them for, for vulnerabilities. Um, a lot of organizations have um, policies around um, how, how severe the vulnerabilities are that they're allowed to run or blacklisting or whitelisting, all that kind of thing. Um, and because these days everybody's deploying code really fast, they've got CICD, so you want to automate all these you know, checks to make sure that your CD system isn't deploying something live that contains some terrible, terrible, uh, well-known vulnerability. Um, secrets management is another um, sort of important aspect. Um, Kubernetes fairly recently, I'm going to say it was in 1.7, I think, uh, started encrypting uh, secrets. Um, but before that, secrets were kind of by default being passed around in the clear, which is pretty scary. Um, and, you know, if you really want to take your uh, security seriously, you might want to be looking at runtime profiling, like we were talking about before, um, using things like SetComp or AppArmor, um, maybe using SE Linux. There's so many different things you can do to make your cluster more secure. You know, 
SC Linux is one of my favorite things in the world to disable. <laughs> <laughs> this program won't run. Disable SC Linux. <laughs> <laughs> that's what the documentation said. If you have problems, disable SC Linux. Well, I think that's probably the biggest um, issue with security, right? Is the inconvenience factor. And even like, say, like SecComp and things like that. That um, So for anybody who's not familiar with what like a SecComp profile is, and this, you know, um, Docker creates like a standard one for you, but it basically controls the system calls that the process in the container is allowed to make. And you can you can actually modify this and, and make it more restrictive or less restrictive to kind of um, limit what the, the process can do um, interacting with the kernel. But most of the time, people have problems with things and they're like, oh, this is a pain. Enable everything. I think that's exactly right. Yeah, making these things easy is a huge challenge. Easy to use, huge challenge. And it's really hard because, right, because like during development time, you're, you're trying to deliver business value, right? So you're constantly trying to get your features done. And every time you get hung up and something isn't working the way you expect it to, and you do a bunch of debugging and you're like, oh, this syscall's disabled. Um, by the time you've done that a couple of times, you're like, all right, this is this is becoming a huge pain. It's slowing me down. I'm just going to enable everything and I'm going to get done what I need to get done and then I'll secure it. But then after the fact, it becomes really hard to go through and like reverse engineer your software and figure out what system calls it makes. Now, shouldn't shouldn't that be something that we should be able to automate? I mean, we can read code and machines can read code. It should be relatively simple enough i say not knowing shit about it but it should be relatively simple enough to just go through and say all right i've scanned this app and it uses these nine syscalls i need to add this profile to my to my docker container just did a blog post and I, I think maybe a talk as well but certainly a blog post where she um she goes through that whole process of, of um you know automating capturing all the syscalls that um I think it was, she was running Chrome um, in her example, you know, just capturing everything that it did over some period of time under normal use and then generating a setcom profile out of that. Um, so it's kind of a, a really interesting thing to go and, go and find. We should, we should add the link to that to the show notes. Um, and one of the things that a product like Acra can make easier for, for enterprises because it can basically learn it automatically. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. So is it is it similar to uh, like intrusion detection training where you uh, where you run it in, in like a, a safe mode for a while and it doesn't really stop anything, but it learns normal behavior? Yeah. Yeah. So we have a, an audit mode and an enforce mode. And uh, there's also like a sort of learning period when you first run a new container image. That's awesome. It's pretty cool. I, you know, I'm. I can't take credit for the product because, you know, the, the, the team, uh, you know, the, the team mostly in Israel, actually, they, they really kind of built this product. And when I first saw it, like I said, I'm just like, this is really clever. <laughs> it's really, really clever. So what's your next big, big talk coming up? What's the next conference you're talking at? Um, that's a great question. I I do know what my next one is, but I'm not sure whether they've announced me yet. So I'm not sure I can say. Um, oh, I just I guess secret. some that I know that I can talk about um, are um, Container Camp in London coming up very soon, uh, and Container Shed not not long after. Container Camp is only in a couple of weeks' time, so um, probably just about the time this podcast gets 
released it'll probably be probably be the same day as container camp um, but that's always a really fun um kind of fairly small group of people uh talking about containing containers and uh, small as in you know it's not like overcon it's not thousands of people it's more like i don't know 100 or 200 or something what's been your favorite conference to attend so far what's what's the conference that has the best atmosphere the best fun oh you mean apart from gophercon because obviously that would be a you know terribly suck up thing for me to say gophercon so i'm yeah, not going to say be, gophercon be, besides gophercon besides gophercon um the KubeCon in Berlin was amazing. There was a real sense of um, uh, like Kubernetes is really going somewhere. There's this huge community of people really, you know, getting together to move Kubernetes from kind of, uh, I'm going to say science project into like something really solid that enterprises can actually use. I thought that was, that was really fun. And the community is really kind of, supportive and and it's kind of interesting to see google handing over the control to the community in what i think seems to be a really good way i think they're doing a really good job of it um you know without just throwing it over the wall they're kind of gradually getting more and more people from outside of google involved um, which is great and i guess kind of similar to what um you know well not quite the same but it's it's um it, the same kind of issue exists with Go. It's interesting to hear the Go community getting bigger and moving outside of Google quite a bit. Um, I guess the other conference that I really enjoyed, um, I guess, a couple of years ago now, well, sort of 18 months ago, was the DockerCon in Seattle. Just huge and so kind of glitzy, I guess. It was really fun. <laughs> I haven't been to a DockerCon yet. Oh, I haven't either. Yeah, it's fun. Comes down to time. That's always the hardest thing is time and how how much you want to be away from home. There's entirely yeah. too many too many conferences to attend. <laughs> I've got quite a few in the next uh, couple of months that are in London, so that's uh, convenient for me. Like um, Velocity, I've got here and in in New York actually, but. Uh, the one in, and there's Container Camp and there's Container Shed as well. So we have quite a good conference scene happening here in in Europe. Yeah, there's really not much going on here in Tampa. <laughs> no. <laughs> not no. much at all. I think Orlando gets some stuff. I mean, from a security perspective, you know, we have um, uh, what's the name of the group that does the CISP certification? They're based out of Clearwater. I think we got a lot of healthcare stuff here. No, no, no big fancy tech conferences here. We don't even host our own conferences here. How bad is that? <laughs> it's pretty bad. Well, would you have the venue for it? I mean, you need a pretty big venue. Uh, yeah, there's, there's, yeah, there's, yeah. We could do it. We won't, we could, but we could. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, who, who wants to talk about uh, interesting Go projects and noobs? OMG. <laughs> OMG. All right. I'm guessing o you have a good OMG. one. OMG. I do. It's a tiny one, but it, it's, it packs a lot of punch. So if, if you've used the terminal, like most of us have, uh, and you've come across Powerline, you'll know that Powerline is a Python app that 
makes lots of cool things appear in your terminal and gives you information, context-sensitive information as you change around and, and execute commands. And Powerline's great, but it's a little slow, especially as you add more and more things to your command prompt. Well, someone, just Jan, J-A-N-N-E, just Jan on GitHub, ported Powerline to Go, and it is stupid fast. So I've added it to all of my machines in this last week, and it just makes me brilliantly happy. Powerline. So it's at github.com slash J-U-S-T-J-A-N-N-E slash powerline dash go. Crazy fast. And it's, it's written in Go, so you can extend it yourself. I don't even know what time it was at night when Brian messaged me like, <laughs> dude, <laughs> dude, you have to see this. I don't know. I use fish and I'm pretty happy. It seems that every, all the info that I get from this power line, I get with my fish shell. I don't see that I can benefit from having this on top of fish. All right. Ele- elevator pitch me on, on fish. See, yeah, I, I, I want to oh hear the, the fish pitch. I'm, I'm I in. Did, Let's listen. I did the bash to ZSH transition, but I haven't tried fish. So, so sell it. It's all on you. Oh, I, I went from bash to, to Z shell and, and then fish and fish is, has, can't compare. It's so much better than the other ones. Uh, some, every once in a while I have to switch to bash, but it's so easy. I just tap, type bash and I get my bash shell to run some commands. That's not compatible with fish, but then I go back to fish. Well, just to, talking about the practical stuff, uh, it's very easy to install. It's very easy to use. I forgot what they call now, profile or templates, like different templates you can use to customize how your shell will look and behave, what kind of info you get. It's so easy to go from one to the other. It's It has a UI, actually. So you boot the UI, and through the UI, you can configure different things, which is nice because you get to see all the possible configurations that you can tweak. It's so user-friendly. It's ridiculous. Uh, no comparison with Seashell. It's such a pain to change anything and install different templates. I get scared of things that have like loads of configuration because I just think I'm going to spend way too much time trying to configure it. I just want things to work. Yeah, but it, it does just work out of the box. If yeah. you if you want to change the color or something, you there are templates. But it just works out of the shell. It's super it's super light, super fast, and it's really cute. So oh. Eric, are you switching? I don't know. I'll 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 look at it. How's that? Oh. <laughs> I'll I'll try I it. I, I consider that a win. You will look at it. I, I think um, in general, I need to rethink my workflow. Um, you know, and it, it's weird. Like in my early development days, I was constantly tweaking my workflow, the tools I use, the configurations for them and things. And but like, I think my shell and Vim configs have been around for like ages now. And I think they're showing their age in bloat. So I'm, I'm highly considering kind of like wiping everything and starting over. So So maybe fish will be on on the table for that. I highly recommend it. And any other things that people want to sell me on. But you're not taking away my i3 window manager. I'm keeping that. No, you no. can keep that. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, this, this week, I, I, I think it was Nate Finch had a tweet, and I 
you know, copied it to have like a, a touch bar button on my oh, Mac yeah. that does the if Eric isn't isn't nil, you know, convenience yeah, button. Oh, awesome. That's on my MacBook. I think that's the only fun thing about the, the touch bar is being able to kind of come up with your own things. But uh, the no escape key kills me. Yeah, I love that. <laughs> is that an actual thing? Is it an actual button you can put on the keyboard? I wasn't sure if he was just joking. No, so oh, you mean um, the external one that you can plug in. Yeah. Yeah, the newer MacBook Pros have like a, a touch screen bar thing, and you can program it to have new buttons there that do things ah okay that was neat yeah it was a real app that he built so wait you could program one of those buttons to be the escape keys then yeah there, there is an escape key there all the time nearly all the time nearly Every time all the i look time. for an escape key it's where i expect it to be okay but sometimes you get some pretty fun things like i don't know you're writing a tweet and it suggest some emoticons for you or um like if you're watching a video you can scroll through the video on the touch bar which I think is quite mm. fun i didn't know that that sounds really neat so, so um wait wait are you wait. dropping to the next one i want to go first uh, i was just going to mention something related to um it's not go specific but i was going to mention something related to the uh playing with changing up your work environment do it do it so did anybody see um, the program? I, I don't know how you pronounce it. Oni, O-N-I. And it's like uh, an electron interface over the top of uh, NeoVim. Yes. Saw it, downloaded it, used it. Did you? What did you think? That's on my list to play with because I, I like the idea of IDEs, but I also love them. So. Link, please. It didn't add enough to NeoVim for me to use a GUI. I mean, my NeoVim setup is really happy for me, and this just didn't, it didn't add a ton. And it doesn't have uh, a Go, uh, Go backing stuff yet. You can use your, your NeoVim plugins, but you're not gaining anything yet in Go because they don't have uh, Go bindings. It looks like it's going to be cool, but hmm. not, not yet. Okay, Carlicia, what was it you had? Yeah, I want to cite uh, this project because it's, it's command line related. This project called Expander, Expander with two R's at the end. And what it does is you install it and then you tweak your editor. And whenever you type out a function call that returns anything, uh, it will add the the error on that function and put the curly brackets there for you and, and add return error. I guess it will expand it so to, to add the error, not just anything. So you'll get, you'll get the if error hmm. uh, oh, nice. bracket thing. And yeah, and you either return the error or return the log. I don't know how you configure that, but it's, it looks like magic. And we do that all the time, so it would be pretty neat. The only issue is that it's only available for Emacs. So, but they are looking for people to contribute to do the extension for Vim and, and other IDs. Now you want to hear how even more related this is to the conversation we just had? 
Uh-huh. Uh, the person who created that is also the creator of i3 Window Manager. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> that is cool. I'm glad you said it before I did. Michael Stapelberg. Yes. Who I, who I got to meet at GopherCon, and it was a little bit like hero worship. It was. And he brought the stickers. Oh. Yeah, he brought us stickers. That is cool. Very excited that we talk about i3 so much on GoTime. <laughs> yeah, as soon as they do that extension for VS Code, I'm install I already installed it. I just can't use it. Hmm. All right, I've got another one. More more projects. You know, I have this absolute fascination with distributed tracing. And I've been playing with all the different distributed tracing tools over the last couple of weeks. And this is one that came out quite a while ago. It's it started started coming out quite a while ago, but I wasn't really sure where they were going with it. And now it's it's usable and kind of awesome. So Uber has released their open tracing collection system called Jaeger, which is Y-A-E-G-E-R, Jaeger. And it is really awesome. So the, the tools are fast and relatively easy. I mean, in terms of distributed tracing, relatively easy to implement. And uh, the the UI that you can use to look at your traces is just killer. It's so nice. That's neat. That's one of the ones I haven't played with yet. Um, yeah, the the distributed tracing is is huge for you know modern projects. Um, and I remember playing with like some of the like Dapper and and Zipkin and things like that early on. So what um what kind of sets this apart? Uh, the the UI is really nice. It's clean. It's easy to use. It supports um, Open Tracing's API directly, which means you don't actually have to use Jaeger's uh, com- uh, Jaeger's SDK to to uh, instrument your code. You just use the regular Open Tracing Go bindings, and then Jaeger takes those and and it's it's the reporter collector part. So uh, because there's a standard for Open Tracing. You know, Jaeger takes all of those traces and you just set Jaeger as your your reporter and collector. I have a, a special treat though, and, and this will only work probably for the live crew, but if you go to 2018.gophercon.com, you can see a boring blank uh, Buffalo web app page. And Wait, did you it, say 2018? Yeah, 2018.gophercon.com. And there's nothing exciting there other than the fact that it's a a, a brand new beginning Buffalo web app, but then go to trace.gophercon.com and I have an instance of Jaeger up and you can see all of the traces that have happened in the last hour or whatever it is. So you get an idea of what the UI looks like. Now they're boring traces because I don't have anything running in the background. It's, it's literally just one request, but it gives you a sense of what the UI looks like. And and unfortunately, by the time this goes to air, this will probably be down. So you'll just have to go to the Jaeger website and, and see. But for the live listeners, you get this, the special treat of seeing what Jaeger looks like before I rip it down. Can you paste the link in the Slack channel? Absolutely. And I, I love the fact that uh, you're using the GoForCon domain as we uh, test this. <laughs> well, so, so this is, it's, relatively related is, um, you know, one of the things that I'm doing to really get deep into my new job at Microsoft is learn all of the pieces of their infrastructure. So 
I'm I'm using GopherCon's 2018 website as the way to do that because why would I build you know another pet store application when I can work in a domain that I care about? So I'm I'm building I'm over engineering GopherCon, and that's kind of fun. It's all microservices and distributed tracing, and you know we could do it with a Hugo web app, but that'd be boring. I'm I'm gonna break out Durbuster tonight. I'm gonna find what else you're hiding there. <laughs> Shh! Don't tell anybody. Uh, all right. Did we have any other um, interesting projects, news articles that are uh, must see? Nope. All right. Free software Friday. I got one. All right. Let's hear it. Again, you know, it's it's like I have these problems over and over in my life. It's kind of sad, but um, I'm I'm having a continuing problem keeping my files in one place in sync. And I used Unison today, which is just the, you know, the age old standard file synchronizer. And it, it differs from rsync in that Unison is bi-directional and rsync is one directional. And it's so fast. So um, thank you to the Unison team who have continued to update that app for, you know, what, 15 or 20 years. Yay. I haven't used that in a long time. One of these days, I'll actually set up backups. <laughs> Strongly recommended. They're good for you. Don't look at me like that, people. It's, there's a raid. <laughs> <laughs> raid is not a backup. Don't make me say it twice. Uh, I mean, it's better than nothing, though. Marginally. So, Carly, do you have anything this week? I don't. How about you, Liz? Do you have a, a project or maintainer you want to give a shout out to? Um, well, I, this isn't like a super new thing, but I think Istio is really interesting. Um, so Istio is kind of sidecars for, um, well, for containerized services, for microservices. Um, but I think it could mean that people end up not having to write so much code to set up their microservices. And that seems like a really cool thing. I'm in no way. You know, I know a tiny, tiny little bit about Istio, but it's something I really want to understand much better. Now, that falls in the service mesh category, right? It does, yes. Which is one of those hodgepodges of terms that you just, you, you wonder, what the hell is a service mesh? Oh, maybe that's a topic for a talk for me. <laughs> it is. It's probably a great topic for a talk. And, you know, it just occurred to me when I woke up this morning, the, the first tweet I made was wishing Mark Bates a happy birthday. So we should probably shout him out on the show, too, because we talked about Buffalo already. And oh, yeah. We, we love keeping the, the people in our community feeling special on their birthday. So happy birthday, Mark. We hope happy birthday, you, Mark. Get, and we hope you'll hit puberty soon. I was going to say, I, I'm just glad we don't have to sing. <laughs> <laughs> I think even though most people will hear this a week late, they should still wish him a happy birthday on Twitter. Absolutely. No matter when you hear this, just reach out to at Mark Bates on Twitter and, and wish him a happy birthday. Can we do like a Twitter storm in like two weeks time? Oh. In, you know, commemoration of Mark Bates's birthday. I think he'd appreciate that. <laughs> That's brilliant. I, th I think that uh, everybody should send him a clip of you smashing a guitar because he was the only one that did it, right? Oh, shut up. <laughs> shut up. You know, somebody asked that on Twitter. I forgot who. 
If they, if did. anybody had a clip of Brian Ketterson smashing his guitar, because nobody nobody <laughs> oh, saw it. I hate you all. That's just because it took you less time to break yours. <laughs> I was right there. Oh Steve wait, says Steve, he has one. Steve says he has one. Posted or it didn't happen, Steve. I'm 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 under the gun here. Oh. <laughs> uh, all right. So U Ulysses Flynn said he saw him. I trust him. I, I I did see Brian smash his guitar. <laughs> well, I'm I don't trust him a hard you. Time. You will cover oh. for Brian. <laughs> That's just rough. I love Brian, but I don't know if I'd lie for him. We're done with this <laughs> damn show. <laughs> so uh, mine for today, I don't I don't know how you pronounce it. I think it's Azaria, um, but she is Fox Zero X Zero One on Twitter. Uh, she's a security person I follow. Super, super smart. But she has um, this awesome, like, seven-part series on her website, Azaria, A-Z-E-R-I-A-Labs.com, for, like, writing ARM assembly. Um, there's, like, another two-part series on if you want to learn how to actually compromise um, ARM processes and write shell code and stuff like that. But um, learning a little bit about ARM processors and how they differ from intel processors and even learning a bit about assembly uh, if you're interested in that type of stuff um, that blog series is really really good um, we'll link to it in the show notes and i will drop it in our slack channel for people who are listening right now oh, carlicia cool. beat me to it there it is <laughs> this is cool eric yeah I'm, I'm i'm a big fan of you know even like i don't think anybody should like you don't have to learn to build software and assembly or in C and things like that. But I think having kind of like a surface level knowledge of things um, a level or two below you definitely makes you a better engineer. Because a lot of stuff are, are leaky abstractions, right? Like it's great when everything is working perfectly, but when it's broken, like having a rough idea of what's happening under the hood uh, can often at least lead you in the right direction of diagnosing it. Yeah. Do we have any other free software Friday things or are we no. wrapping this thing up? Yeah, I'd like to thank Steve St. Martin for being my hero. <laughs> <laughs> and proving that it did happen. <laughs> uh, you just you just you broke yours the right way. So it uh it happened faster. That is awesome. All right. So I think it is time to wrap this show up. We're actually early, which is awesome. Um, thank you so much, Liz, for coming on the show and for all the great content you're producing and helping uh, make all of us better engineers. It's been really fun to be here. Absolutely. Great. Thank you. When I grow up, I want to give talks half as engaging as yours. Agreed. <laughs> you do. Your Golang UK one with the Game of Thrones. Brilliant. <laughs> Brilliant. I can't wait to see that. Uh, so huge thank you to all of our listeners. Um, definitely share the show with friends, family, colleagues. Um, we are at GoTimeFM on Twitter. Um, if you have suggestions or questions, um, hit us up on github.com slash GoTimeFM slash ping. And with that, uh, goodbye, everybody. We'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. All right, that's it for this episode of GoTime. Tune in live on Thursdays at 3 p.m. U.S. Eastern at changelog.com slash live. Join the community in Slack with us. In real time during the shows, head to changelog.com slash community. Follow us on Twitter. We're at 
GoTimeFM. Special thanks to Fastly, our bandwidth partner. Head to Fastly.com to learn more. Also, Linode, we host everything we do on Linode servers. Head to Linode.com slash changelog. GoTime is edited by Jonathan Youngblood, and the theme music for GoTime is produced by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. We'll see you again next week. Thanks for listening. <laughs>